Well, I want to welcome you today to the very first week of our I Have a Friend Who message series. What we did was we took 10 subjects, we threw them out there to you guys and said, what are the top four things that you'd like to hear us address through this series? And so we have four things that we're going to talk about the next four weeks here at South Bay. Today we're going to start off, and as the titles come on the screen, today we're going to start off talking about secrets that we all carry and how those secrets can begin to eat away or erode at our joy and peace and how do we move past those secrets. Now, I have a friend who is kind of code for I might myself struggle with, so it will be tools for both you personally and for your friends as we go through these subjects. Next week, 1103, we're going to talk about finances and how often finances feel like they're out of control and how do we get control of our finances and what are some tools for that. On 1110, we're going to talk about world religions, and so oftentimes there are so many different points of view, especially in our culture here in Silicon Valley, and what's the right world religion? Is there one that is right? That's the question the third week. And then in the fourth week, we're going to deal with this issue of security and how often we feel worthless as human beings, and what is it that God's Word or that the Bible says about our worth and value that can give hope to our lives. So that's where we're going with this series, and today we want to start off talking about secrets. Now, all of us have secrets, stories that we probably hope nobody else finds out, stories that we try to cover, and I want to tell you one of my secret stories. This happened when I was in middle school, and I have to give you some context. My parents divorced when I was 10 years old. My mom moved from Michigan to North Carolina, and when she moved to North Carolina, she met a redneck, and this guy was about as redneck as it gets. Like, if you look up on Wikipedia, redneck, there's a picture of this guy there, because Eddie, who was her boyfriend, smoked Marlboro Red cigarettes, he drank Budweiser, he listened to country music, he wore those A-frame t-shirts, also known as wife beater t-shirts, he worked on a dredge, he had a very thick accent, and to top it all off, he had a mullet. Party in the front, business in the back. If you have a mullet, sorry to embarrass you in front of everybody, it's a really bad hairdo. But Eddie was a redneck, and... One of the things that always interests me about Eddie was how he smoked Marlboro Red cigarettes. So I would watch Eddie and my mom, who both smoke, smoking cigarettes, and I think, man, that looks good. I'd like to try that sometime. Maybe you've had that feeling sometime you're watching somebody smoke as a kid or something. Like, looks good like a cigarette should. That's a commercial from way back when if you um, want to go look it up on YouTube or Google. I think that's before my day and age. But they used to have commercials about cigarettes. I digress. Anyways, I would watch Eddie smoke cigarettes and... I always wonder if maybe someday I could smoke a cigarette. So when I was 12 years old, one summer, I'd spend the entire summer with my mom there. Eddie and my mom were gone. And during that day, I walked up and I found a pack of Marlboro Red cigarettes that Eddie had left at the house. And I opened them up, kind of the box top. And inside were seven seven Marlboro Red cigarettes. So I thought, hey, I'll smoke one, kind of get the feel for this thing. So I smoke it and I, you know, coughing like crazy and... I was kind of enjoying the buzz a little bit, but then as soon as the cigarette was gone, I probably put it out like halfway through, but as soon as I was done with it, I started thinking, they're going to find out about this. Eddie's going to come home and he's going to know how many cigarettes were in his Marlboro Red cigarette box. So I need to cover this up, but what am I going to do to cover up my smoking? So I, I thought, well, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll throw them in the trash. No, Eddie will find them in the trash. He'll know how many that were there. So... What could I do? I could just smoke the rest of them. 
So I went, I grabbed another cigarette, I smoked it, I grabbed a third, I smoked it, four, five, six, seven, I smoked the entire pack of cigarettes the first time I had ever smoked. And the irony of this is like most people smoke with their friends trying to be cool. No, I smoked alone by myself, puffing, looking in the mirror, thinking I'm a horrible person. I can't believe I'm doing this. My mom's going to find out I'm going to be in big trouble. I suck. I'm a horrible, sorry, I stink. I'm a horrible person. I can't believe I did this. And then to cover it up, here's to make it better, I took that little pack of cigarettes, I wadded it up, I put it at the bottom of the trash can, and then I went around the entire house, grabbed all of the ashtrays, took them into the trash can, dumped them out, cleaned the entire house so my mom would think I'd been a good kid and all day had been sitting there cleaning her house when all day had been sitting there smoking at her house. Anybody else have some stories like that? One moment of confession. Maybe yours not Marlboro Red. We could do a stage time. You could come up here and tell your stories and we'll have some fun. Hey, all of us have stories, though, of things that we've done that we wish we had not done. And when we're a kid, they're funny. You know, sometimes it's covering up something that you broke when you're a small kid. But then when you become an adult, it's a pretty big deal. You know, you got that relationship with somebody that started on Facebook or a co-worker, somebody that you should not have developed a relationship with, and you're married, and, and there's this adulterous or emotional affair starting to take place. And there's this secret. Or there's this pill that you started popping when you were sick, but you're not sick anymore and you keep popping those pills. Or there's this addiction that you have to work and you're obsessive and you're compulsive and you can't stop yourself. And maybe you said it was for just a period of time, but now it's become a pattern in your way of life. Or, or, Or maybe there's a thought pattern and you just think if they knew, if they just found out, if somebody knew that this was the state of my heart or there's a pornography addiction and there are these secrets that we all hold. And what you know and I know about our secrets is that holding them does not go very well for us, does it? Because then we start to live in this cloud of anxiety, we have stress, we have worry, we're we're worrying that somebody's going to find out what we've done, and then we become a shell of the person that we were created to be, and there's this secret inside of us that destroys us. And there's this incredible verse from Scripture, Proverbs chapter 28 Verse 13, I want to just read it to you. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, would say this. He says, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. See, we know this. Intuitively, we know that when we confess, there's healing from the brokenness and shame inside of us. But when we conceal it, when we cover it, There's destruction, there's pain, there's hardship. Yet, here's the challenge. So many of us know this, but we continue to cover, we continue to hide, we continue to hope that nobody finds out about the secrets inside of us. And what I want to talk to you about today, for just a few moments, is the tendency that you have to cover, and I have to cover, and we all, from the beginning of time, to cover our secrets, our shame, our brokenness, our sin. Why it does not work for us how we have this tendency to cover, and why uncovering might be a better solution. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you two overarching principles that we're going to look at today. And the first component is this, that covering leads to guilt and destruction. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't thought of before. Covering leads to guilt and destruction, but so many of us knowing it continue to do so. And then the second component is that confessing leads to grace and healing and there's a better option and my heart is and I believe that today there are going to be some people who've been carrying secrets for years maybe for decades that you've become a shell of the person God's created you to be and today you're going to be set free because of confession so we're going to look 
at a powerful passage of Scripture in the Old Testament of the Bible, and I want to paint for you a picture of why confession might be a better way to live, to live and step into who God's created you to be. The story goes in Genesis chapter 3. If you have a a Bible, you can turn there. Way back at the beginning of the Bible. And Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, were placed into the garden. And when they got placed into the garden, God said to them, okay, listen, hey, there's all this stuff here. There are all these trees, all these shrubs. I mean, it's all for you. All the fruit, it's all yours. Enjoy it, just the two of you. Enjoy relationship, enjoy the beauty, enjoy the fruit. There's this one tree at the center of the garden called the tree of life. You can eat from it. But there's this other tree, God said, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, you will die. Your eyes will be open to your sin, the knowledge of good and evil, and then you will die inside. You will die a physical death eventually. There had at that point been no death in the human race. And Adam and Eve, after being placed into the garden one day, we don't know how long it was, whether it was a day, a week, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, because they didn't die, so they could have been 100 and looked like they were 25. The incredible fountain of youth. We don't know how long it was, but what we do know is there's this story where Adam and Eve are at the center of the garden, and the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are there. And the story goes that the serpent shows up, who is Satan in snake form, shows up to Adam and Eve and wants to get them to eat of this piece of fruit that God has already told them. You have all this other stuff you can eat from, but this one piece, this one tree, I do not want you to touch, and the serpent shows up. Now, you can go back and read the story because it's incredibly insightful, but I want to tell you three things real quick he does to Adam and Eve. First of all, he says to them, did God really tell you not to eat that fruit? I mean, really? Are you sure? Are you confident that God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve rebuttals back. Yes, God told us this is the case. Now, he's used these same strategies with humanity from the beginning of time. He tries to get those of us who are trying to follow in the ways of God to question his word, to question his commands, to question his direction. So he says, did God really say that? Eve says, yes, he did. Well, then he says this. Well, you know, God, God isn't going to really follow through then. Like, you're not going to die. If you eat that, eat that fruit, go ahead. You're not going to die. I mean, come on, there's not going to be any consequences. And then he gets us to kind of start or he got them to start thinking, well, maybe I could eat this fruit. Maybe I could do it and not die. Maybe God, maybe God told me, but God, God, God really didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe he's not going to follow through. And then the last thing that Satan says or the serpent says is, you know, God knows that if you eat that fruit, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like him. So he questions God's motive. So now Adam and Eve are like totally confused. What am I going to do? I mean, here's this serpent, this talking snake. I mean, it sounds like an Indiana Jones movie and I'm trying to figure out what to do about this. And then the scripture says in verse number six, that's where we pick up the story. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, let's just stop here for a second. You know what's ironic about this? Here is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I was reading back through the story last night. And I was thinking about, okay, here's this tree. And right next to it is the tree of life. Right next to it is this source of life that actually at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, I believe it is, that at the end of time, there's going to be this tree of life in heaven through the city of God that a river is going to flow through and it's going to bear fruit in season. It's going to keep bearing fruit over and over and over again. The tree of life right next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this knowledge of good and evil tree that God said don't eat from, it looks really good to Adam and Eve. 
And that's the same way temptation works for you and I. That's the same reason that we end up in our secrets, in our shame, in our struggles. Because that thing looks so good. And then we start to think, does God really have my best interest at hand? Does He really love me? Does He really care about me? And Eve looks and she's like, you know, this does look pretty good. And then the scripture says, and then she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And in one decision... Sin enters the human race. She violates God's perfect standard. He violates God's perfect standard. And now sin, brokenness, shame enters the entire human race. And not only did the story of Adam and Eve happen, it happens today in you and I. And I want us to see three things that Adam and Eve do that we do today, that they did that we do to cover their sin and their brokenness. And watch what happens next in verse number 8. It says, verse number 7, excuse me. It says, she took some, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were naked, were open, and they realized that they were naked. So think about this for a second. They've been running around having a you know, nudie party for a long time, and nobody ever knew anything about it. They're like a bunch of French people on a beach somewhere. You know, Nobody knows. Everybody's naked, but nobody, nobody recognizes it. Sorry if you're French and I offended you. But you know, it, it, it always seems amazing to me how there's these nude beaches and nobody's like... You know, it's normal. To me, it's not normal. I guess it's because I didn't grow up going to a nude beach. I digress. But they're naked and they don't see anything wrong with it. They don't recognize it. And then all of a sudden they eat the fruit and then they recognize that they're naked. And they got to cover up their bits and pieces. So what do they do? The story goes that they sewed together fig leaves and they covered up themselves so nobody would knew. They took a covering and then they put that covering on in order to hide, to hide their brokenness, to hide their sin, to hide their shame. But the first thing I want us to recognize that Adam and Eve do in their covering of themselves is they try to control. And the first game that they play under the covers is the control game. They try to manage their brokenness. They try to manage their sin, manage their disobedience. And you and I do it too, don't we? You know, we, we play games like this with ourselves. You know, I'm just going to do it this one time. It's just one look. Nobody else is around. It's just ten minutes on the internet. It's just one peep. It's just one night with her. It's just one hit. I, I, I do this with coffee. You know, I used to kind of go through this struggle of like, I'm really not addicted to coffee. Because I could stop any time. I could cease drinking it at any moment. And then I tried to quit. I'm like, I can't quit. I'm addicted. So my rationalization I came to is that I think God likes me more and people like me more when I don't, when I, when I am drinking coffee. And so I've just rationalized the great commandment uh, that God gives to us is to love God with all your heart and people as yourself. And I love God. I'm like a better lover of God and people when I have coffee. That's a good rationalization, isn't it? No, nobody thinks that's cool. All right. But I, I noticed, okay, I, I play this game. I can't quit, right? But I can drink like I can drink like eight cups a day, right? Sounds a lot when I say it, but you know that's about how much I drink. I'm like, oh, but I'm going to manage it, right? And I'm going to control it, and I'm going to do about this much. Have you ever done that before? 
It's five cigarettes a day, and then it becomes ten cigarettes a day, and then it's a pack a day, and then it's two packs a day, and now your fingernails are starting to turn yellow, and you're hacking up in the morning for 30 minutes, and it just started out, and you were trying to control it, or it was just one drink after work with a bunch of buddies, and then it became two drinks, and then you had to have that drink before you could go to sleep, and then you had to have three drinks before you could go to sleep, and it became a full-blown alcoholic decision, and maybe you're functioning now, and you're going through life, but that thing that started out that you were controlling... It grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and it now has control over you. The control game doesn't work for Adam and Eve. It didn't work. It doesn't work for us. But they don't just do the control game. Let's watch the other game that they do as we continue to read. Verse number eight, it says that then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God as he was walking among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was, I was, af- I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. I wonder how long Adam and Eve had walked with God. And in that moment, the realization of their sin, that they would hide from their creator that they had been walking with face to face. Unlike you and I ever see God, they, they saw him. They knew him. And then with one sin, they go into shame and they try to hide and they hope God doesn't see their nakedness. Of course, he's God. He's got radar vision. He created them. He knows what their bits and pieces look like. There's no hiding from God. But the game that they play is the same game you and I play. And some of you, you, you've been struggling with some secret for years. And now you start to think to yourself, I'm, I'm such a horrible person. No one could ever love me. I mean, if they knew what I did, if they knew what I'm doing, if they knew about that relationship, if if he knew about that thought, if he knew what I'm looking at, if, if he knew my heart and my intent, there's no way that God or anybody else could ever love me. And some of you today, that weight of your shame is bearing down on your soul. And God wants to release you for today to be a new day of freedom. But before I get to the solution side, let's look at one more game because I think we all play these games and then the fourth, the third game, which is I think the funniest game. Actually, we can most identify with it in many ways as men. In verse number uh, 11, he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And then in verse number 12, now notice how God holds the man accountable. God goes first to the man, verse number 12, and then it says, then the man said, the woman you put with me. Do you notice the double blame right there? It's like men just have this propensity to double, just throw the blame, the blame game. It's your fault, God, that you gave me this girl, this lady, and then she tricked me into doing it. It's her fault. It's her fault. It's your fault. It's the blame game. And then we think to ourselves, you know, if you were in my shoes, you'd do the same thing I do. Now, it doesn't stop with the man. Watch what happens next. It says, then... The Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So it's this domino effect. It starts, God hold the man accountable. Then the man blames the woman. Then the woman blames the serpent. Somebody's got to get blamed. So the blame just keeps shifting. And we do this, don't we? We think to ourselves, if, if, if you were in my shoes, if you 
had been raised by the parents I have. I mean, if you lived in the house I live in right now as a teenager and your parents were treating you the way that, that they're treating me, you, you'd go out and sleep around. You'd do the same thing if you were me, if you were in my shoes. I mean, if you were married to that woman, this woman, this, this wife that I have, I mean, she, all she does is, you know, run her mouth. And, you know, Proverbs actually says that a, a, a quarrelsome wife... It's better to live on the corner of a house than live with a quarrelsome wife. And, you know, it's this idea that she's, she's, she just drives you crazy, makes you want to get out of the house, go away. And if you, if you were married, you think this, if you were married to her, you'd do it too when you're away on a business trip. I mean, we haven't slept together for months or years. Or If you were in my shoes, if you had been sick the way that I was sick, you would have started doing the same thing I'm doing. If you had the same boss that I have who was always breathing down your neck, You'd work like I do all the time. You'd be a workaholic as well. And we, we shift the blame. We transfer it to justify, to make ourselves feel better. I, I was with coffee. I'm like, you know, I mean, if, if I got to get up and work and start, I mean, I need coffee. You know, we play that blame game over and over and over again with our secrets. Let me ask you a question. What game are you playing under the covers? I'm not talking about different kind. I'm talking about blame, shame, and control. What game are you playing under the covers? And might I say, there's a reason why these games never work for you and for me. There's a reason why the blame, the shame, and the control game don't work. It's here. Here's the reason why. It's because those games, they never get to the root of the problem. They never go to the source of why you got into that situation in the first place. And I'm going to say something that's going to hack some of you, you off. And that's okay. I'm sorry. That's what I get paid for is to offend people at times. But, but some of us are so focused on the thing that we did or the thing that we do that we never have dealt with the root of what got us into the situation in the first place. And let me say this. This is the thing I think might frustrate some of you. Your, your situation's not your problem. Your adultery is not your issue. Your pornography that you're looking at, it's, it's, it's honestly, it is a problem. It is an issue, but it's not the issue. Your greed, your addiction, your secret is not the problem. See, for all of us, there was something that started this domino effect for us way back when, and maybe it even begins way, 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 way back when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and it's kind of this trickle effect. But there's, a, there's an issue that's below the issue, that's below the issue, that's below the surface, that's below the issue, that led to the issue that you currently are hiding and trying to cover up. And the question is, how do you... How do you get to the core of what it is that puts you where you are now? Now, if you're taking notes, in order to change that symptom, in order to deal with the fruit. Now, that's what most of us do. That's where most of us spend our lives. We focus on the fruit. We focus on the symptom. And here, here's why we feel so guilty, because we, we, we can't change. We're, we we want to stop. We don't want to keep doing it. We, we, we hope it will be different, but we're, we're there. We're still there again. We said we wouldn't do it. And the reason is that you're just dealing with the fruit and not going to the root. And in order to change the fruit, you have to change the root. Now, pastors work really hard to make things rhyme all the time. In order to change the fruit, you have to go to the root. And for the remaining moments we have together, I want to talk to you about that root. I want to talk to you about what is it that caused you to get there? What is it that led to those choices that you're currently trying to? To cover up and maybe there's a better way see the better way is not 
The blame, the shame, or the control game. The better way is to uncover and to confess what's underneath that is bringing us to that point. And I love this verse from Psalm chapter 32, where David, after an adulterous affair, would say this. He would say, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day and night. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Now, I know that those of you who grew up in California can't understand this verse right here, because there's not the heat of summer the way it was in South Carolina where I went to college. And it's like 120 degrees, and you could cut the humidity with a fork. It was so bad. And David says... The way that that kind of heat saps your strength is the same way that concealed or hidden lies, secrets, sins, brokenness, shame. It's destructive. It holds you back. It makes you less than God created you to be. It it makes you live with this cowering sense of somebody's going to figure it out or one person knows and they're going to tell somebody out else about it and then I'm going to be discovered and everybody's going to think I'm this horrible, no good person. And that state of living, when you're there, when you're in that moment, what will determine whether or not you are healed is what you believe about God and the people around you. What you believe about God and the people around you. And I want to just talk to you for a moment about God. Because watch the second half of what he says. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I stopped playing games. I stopped trying to hide it. I stopped the the, the shame and the control and the blame. I stopped. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Point number one under confession is it's a confession to God immediately. That's the first step in this healing. It's a confession to God back to God. I confessed it to the Lord. And then, and then here's the question. What's he going to do? When you bring it to him, when you expose it, when you tell him, and again, it's not a secret to him. He knows. He sees. He's not, he, he, you can't cover up with the one who created you. But what happens next is whether or not the belief of whether or not that will influence whether or not you will go to him. And the scripture says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I said, And then you forgave the guilt of my sin. See, friends, I I know that we all have had some kind of negative religious experiences, okay? I, I think a lot of people in the Silicon Valley grew up, no church background, or maybe your grandmother took you to church a couple times in your childhood, or you went to a Buddhist temple, or you, you went to some, some Muslim mosque and, and church or religion. It, it was all about God waiting to strike you down, and you laughed in church, or you wore the wrong clothes, or you said the wrong things, or you did the wrong things. And then there were all these things that you did, you were told not to do, you know, don't back in the south they used to always say don't drink smoke and chew or date girls that do and you you're not supposed to do all these things you're supposed to keep all these laws all these rules and then you did those things and now you got the shame that came from doing those things and you're like if that's what god's like i want to get as far away from god as possible and what i'm here to say to you and why we started a church is that's not who god is 
Even though your bad religious experience might communicate to you that God is waiting to strike you down, actually what the scripture communicates is that God would strike his son for your shame, for my guilt, for my brokenness. And the whole message of Jesus dying on a cross, being God in human flesh, having lived 33 perfect years among us, that his death was the death that you and I should have died because of our shame, because of our guilt, because of our secret. Which is really baffling to try to understand, isn't it? I mean, why couldn't God just forgive? Yet there's this multifaceted part of God's character that He's just, that He's holy, and He cannot look on sin, but at the same time, God is merciful, and He's loving, and He's gracious. And so God created this solution, and the solution was, okay... I will go down, I will die in place of the people who should be punished because of their sin. That internally they know that punishment. It's, a, it's amazing to me. I hear story after story after story of people across the world, even in our area, that we feel like we've got to take some punishment for the wrongs that we do. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll take the punishment for every sin that has ever been committed. I will be brutally murdered on a cross so that the people I've created can be free and can be forgiven. And there, in one act, with the death of God on a cross and resurrection from the dead, all who will confess, who will identify, who will recognize that they didn't get it right, one act, forgiveness applied. And it's all washed away. And in one confession with one death, one resurrection from God himself, you can have a slate that is entirely wiped clean. And today, some of you have been running from God. You've been hiding from God. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Don't run from me anymore. I'm not waiting to kill you. I'm not waiting to judge you. I'm waiting to forgive you. I stand at the door and I knock. And that shame... You're my child. You're not this horrible person. I created you. I know you. I love you. Come to me. Don't run from me anymore. Guys, from my heart, the enemy wants you, that serpent wants you to stay behind those covers. And God's saying, no, drop it and come to me and I'll forgive you. But there's a second component of confession. I'm going to tie it all up. It's confession to God, but it's also confession to one another. I think that these two go hand in hand. In James 5.16, it says this. It, it says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you could be healed. That there is this power in confession to God and one another. And when we confess in the context of community, there is healing, there is grace, there is mercy that God can give into our lives. And this is where the I have a friend who component comes in. Because many of us have friends that are struggling, but we're not the kind of person that they want to confess to, that they could come to. And what God is wanting to say to some of you today is that you need to switch, flip a switch to become the kind of person who would express my mercy and my grace so that people can understand my forgiveness. You know, there's a story in the Bible in John chapter 8 where there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And the story goes that these men brought this woman to Jesus and the law commanded that this woman should be stoned for her adultery. And all of these religious leaders had gathered together. They brought the woman to Jesus and they wanted to know what Jesus thought they should do with the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus goes up 
to the woman, looks at her, he writes in the sand, he stands up, the story goes, and he looks around and he says, those of you that have no sin, those of you who have never been jealous, judged, lied, cheated on your Hebrew fourth grade test, those of you who have never done anything wrong, you pick up that stone and you throw it. And the story says that one by one, put the stones down. And here's this woman, face to face with Jesus, the one who had never sinned. And Jesus says, where are all your accusers now? Where'd they go? The woman says, they're all gone. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I forgive you. Go and leave your life of sin. There's something so scandalous about grace. There's something so shocking. I mean, do you realize what she... She, she just committed adultery, Jesus. Yep. That's who I am. That's my heart. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is your responsibility to be Jesus to somebody in your life when they confess to you. And for some of us today... There's something that we need to confess to God and there's this wall between us and Him. Whether it's a wall that you've never chosen to believe or it's a wall and you are a follower of Jesus and it's been there for some period of time. And might I say to you, today can be the day that the wall comes down. Today can be the day that you you identify, you confess, you tell God, you tell somebody else. You get out of that secret. You put, the, you put the cover down out of that shame, out of the control, out of the blame and come to God and let His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and His healing be applied to you so that you can walk free. Maybe it's a note that you write to God and you say, God, I'm identifying with my struggle. Maybe it's a spouse that you need to go to and you need to confess to them that there's an issue. Maybe for some of us today at the end of our time as we sing this a song, there's going to be some counselors in our lobby at our Connection Center that you can go out and pray with somebody. Maybe it's getting involved in a life group. Maybe it's taking some time this week to write a letter to God for the first time to say, I don't know if you're there, I'm not really sure, but if you are there, I just want to ask God that you would forgive me for my past. See, God is more loving. He's more compassionate. He's more gracious. He's more forgiving than you and I could ever comprehend. I recently had a friend come to me who had had kind of a one-night stand relationship. And I think that this friend in their confession thought I was going to judge, thought I was going to condemn. And I looked at that person and I said, after praying through and kind of talking, God, God forgives you. The slate's clean. He doesn't love you because of what you've done. He loves you in spite of what you've done. And today, if there's anything I want you to hear, God loves you. All he's asking you to do is confess, identify, and come to him so his grace can be applied to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize the weight of this. We recognize that you are a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. And your love can saturate the depths of our soul, down into our hearts, down into the deepest places of who we are. And that love can go, the roots can extend deep and down into the places that have shame and brokenness. And even in this moment, there can be this forgiveness that saturates our heart and we can have a new perspective on who you are. And today, God, we pray in this moment that we would recognize, that we would confess, but then 
We wouldn't let ourselves be stuck behind this wall of thinking that you're here to judge or you're here to condemn, but to recognize that you're here to give mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you that your blood, your mercy has the power to wash away every sin, every moment of shame, every moment of brokenness. And today, God, as we pray this song, I can't even imagine the depth and the weight that so many people are carrying today. But I know, God, that you're able to take it. You're able to receive it. And so I pray that we'd be honest with you now in this moment from our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.